Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Jazzy Jill's Jibe. I am your host, Jillian Barnes. Today, we're going to be diving into the origins of ballet and how it has evolved over time. Our reading for this week is called Ballet, A History in Broad Breaststrokes by Carol Pardo. So really, we want to get into um, the beginning of ballet and also the different eras throughout the centuries of how ballet had dramatic shifts through time. So to begin, ballet is the oldest form of Western theatrical dancing. The origins of ballet coincide with the arrival of Italian dancing masters at the French court during the late 16th century. Its participants were courtiers for whom dancing would dance along with uh, classical mythology themes. Um, and they also utilized, started to utilize turnout because of fencing. Um, and that would make, it would be 90 degree rotation of the feet from the hip joint. And that would, as they found, increase their flexibility and increase their range of motion. So we have already talked about how court dance had elaborate scenery and costumes and effects. Um, and it was quite a spectacle because the court was paying a lot of money to put this on for nobility. Um, the performance took place on the floor with the audience looking down from raised tiers. So we haven't seen the introduction of a proscenium theater setting yet. Um, but the most prominent um, figure in court ballets was Louis XIV, who was King of France from 1638 to 1750. He began starting on stage very young, and he had quite a legacy for ballet, and we're going to get into that. Louis XIV danced until the age of 32, and while he was a famous performer, that was not his most notable contributions to ballet. In the decade before his retirement, the king founded both the Royal Academy of Dance um, and also the Royal Academy of Music, which would go on to survive the French Revolution. Um, however, he also founded the Paris Opera Ballet in 1713, which was and is still the oldest ballet company in the world. So from his departure from the stage around 1670 and his interest in teaching, Louis XIV opened the door to the next great development in ballet. Through this Paris Opera Ballet, he founded the professionalism of the dancer. Now dancing could be considered a professional job that someone could have. At, at around the same time, the raised proscenium stage was also adopted, which contributed to the differentiation of dancer and spectator and changed the nature of choreography. And what, what is also notable about this is that by 1681, women also joined men on stage because before it was just male dancers that performed both the male and female roles. But now women were starting to find a spotlight on the stage. 
So now I want to get into, in this podcast, the six eras of ballet. So the first one that we just covered is considered the court and Baroque dance era. And the next um, era of dance that came next was called the ballet de action. And this was quite a bit different from the court Baroque ballet in a variety of ways. Um, this was very a very dramatic take on ballet. And they also got rid of the wigs and excessive costuming and really focused on the emotional expression of dance, much like theater does. Um, and also the court dance started to fizzle out because the money disappeared for it. A lot of changes were taking place and importance was starting to be put more so on ballet. So I think it's notable um, that this era did was a huge shift from before. But then the era that came next um, lasted a longer period of time, which is the Romantic Ballet period. And during this period, women began to have bigger roles on stage. Um, we were starting to see more of the Romantic Ballet costuming, the more graceful and poise. Um, whenever you look back at photographs of ballerinas during this time, they are not very athletic quite yet. They are still in this more um, encompassing beauty and grace on stage. Um, and then also during this period was beginning the development of the point shoes. And point shoes were really developed um, because men wanted to see the women um, do some more kind of tricks. And women um, didn't do as many of the big jumps as men. So th the development of the point shoe enabled women to appear to glide across the stage, to appear this lightness. And to dance on their toes was, you know, was an incredible feat. Um, and is still now an incredible feat, in my opinion, to dance on point shoes. So this um, gave women a way to um, increase their technical skill of ballet and to also start to find um, their own voice in this developing art form. Also, I think it's really interesting um, how the audience perceived this. I think the audience was really shocked, but also just enamored and amazed at these women that were wearing point shoes. Um, a really funny fact that we talked about in class was some of the audience members kind of became obsessed with some of the dancers. And uh, I don't know how they would obtain the point shoes, but I heard that they would boil the the old point shoes and actually eat them to, I guess, honor the dancer. But that just seems a little crazy to me. But that is purely like how amazed and how much they valued ballet during this time. And the audience changed from purely nobility to the middle class. Um, 
And yeah, so this was a huge change because now we're starting to see um, different themes as well. And ballet started to spread. It started to spread, you know, from France to Denmark to Russia. And now it's starting to grow throughout Europe. And also like mythology themes, especially in Denmark, I believe um, like Norse gods were used um, to really dive into that culture. That is the themes of theater that they were used to. So they incorporated um, Norse mythology into the Denmark ballets as well. Um, yeah, and like I mentioned, Russian ballet was starting to take hold, which was a mix of both Italian and the French ballet. Um, and then the teachers were actually recruited from France for the Russian ballet. Um, France was starting to become very picky with who they were picking as teachers and choreographers. And there started to become a surplus of them, of talent. And Russia saw this surplus and said, hey, I'm going to take that. <laughs> so uh, they definitely got a lot of French influence and Italian and some Italian influence into uh, their ballets. Uh, and this also began the shift from just one long act into divided into several acts. And now, like, I know Sleeping Beauty has three acts or um, Swan Lake. So now we're starting to see a more a story unfold in these ballets. And instead of just focusing on um, we're starting to see a longer drawn out um, performance take place. And yeah, now we have the development of neoclassical ballet. And what's really interesting about neoclassical ballet is that it began in the 20th century, well, late 19th century, early 20th century. And a very a notable figure um, is George Balanchine. Um, and he choreographed for various ballet companies, including um, the Opera di Monte Carlo for the Ballet Ruses and Lay's Ballets. So he definitely had a very strong start in his career and also founded the New York City Ballet. And that is still one of the most prominent ballet companies in the world even today. And his technique is heavily influenced from Russian, Russian teachings. His emphasis is on flexibility and, you know, extreme um, physicality and athleticism. His dancers are the most amazing athletes that I've ever seen. So that really in the 20th century, the emphasis on athleticism went through the roof. Now we're starting to see, you know, these beautiful dancers with gorgeous muscles that train all day and night in order to achieve these complex, quick movements and these intricate steps that only athletes um, would be able to perform. And now the last one that I would really love to touch on is contemporary ballet. And this is a relatively new era of ballet that we are in. Um, 
it's kind of said the start like recently, maybe even in 2000. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's an actual date that started contemporary ballet, but it's very recent. And we're starting to see really breaking down the barriers of what ballet can be. I've seen ballet not done in the traditional tutus anymore. It can be done um, wearing pretty much any type of costuming. Um, also, it can be pretty much anything you set your mind to when it regards to costuming, set, story, and even the dancers themselves um, are changing. Now, used to, we had this, um, some choreographers had this like ideal ballet body that they wanted to see on stage, but now we're starting to see um, multiple ballet type ballet body types represented on stage and starting to see a diverse cast and kind of breaking away from the uniformity that held ballet kind of in a um, uncomfortable place. And now I'm starting to see it um, become diverse and more, much more inclusive than in the past. I am very excited to see the future of ballet because I think it is headed in an incredible direction. I think that as long as we continue to break barriers, to diversify companies, and to ensure that ballet is accessible to everyone that wants to take part in it, I think that those should be some of our goals as dance educators, as dancers, as choreographers, as teachers, as dance enthusiasts. I think it's important to um, do everything we can to support um, people that have a dream, people that are inspired by dance, and to help them in as many ways as we can. Um, and yeah, so thank you for listening to my podcast on ballet today. Um, if you have any questions, please um, drop them below. Uh, thank you for taking your time to listen. Have a great, wonderful day.